This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. Well, in the world of technology, we have an issue. This is the part where you said you don't talk about technology. No, you no, talk no. About, look talk, at the, I'm going to talk at Ukraine. I'm okay, there we go. Good, good, good. Technology. I see. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah. We weren't setting up the technological difficulties we were having. No. <laughs> we're going to talk about technology and Ukraine. Oh, I see. And we have with us Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. He is a prolific author, author about and on issues of peace, world security, nuclear weapons, resources, and international relations. Michael Clare, thank you for being back with us on the show, particularly today. Um, I was pleased in some ways to see, I know my, Monty will find this a we weird way to look at the world, that there was not a top-of-the-fold headline of uh, in the New York Times today about the missile that has land, that landed, uh, it appears, in Polish territory that may well be a Russian missile and that would perhaps prompt NATO to become directly involved in the war in Ukraine against Russia. It, it does lead to a number of very precarious uh, potential uh, situations and scenarios involving, well, the potential for nuclear war and world war. So I'm happy to see that the Times did not play it that way today. But I would appreciate your perspective on how serious this missile attack, if indeed it was an attack, is for the future of, I don't know how to under, under or overstate this, future of the world. Help us. Oh, my, oh my gosh. That was that was indeed a, a ominous lead. So, according to the latest reports, uh, the the missile that struck Poland was in all likelihood a Soviet era missile fired by the Ukrainian side to intercept a Russian fired cruise missile that was aimed at Ukrainian territory. And either through the either they collided and then fell into Polish territory, uh, or the 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 collision took place over Polish territory. It's unclear and being investigated. So it didn't turn into the international incident, or it hasn't so far, that could have pr uh, prompted a Article Five incident under the NATO treaty, which would mean that, you know, NATO would be on a war footing with Russia. And I think we should be grateful for that. But Bill, in, in my view, the, the real, the big story for this is the in, intense bombardment of Ukraine by Russia using cruise missiles and other missiles to destroy infrastructure in Ukraine. These are targeting civilian infrastructure uh, it's these are not acts of war. These are not legitimate acts of war. These are uh, attacks to to moralize and to harm civilians on a very large scale and and should be condemned. Uh, 
so it, it's the scale of the Russian bombardment that should be our focus this morning. I want to I want to talk about that. And before we do, um, because you've just made me feel so much better, uh, I would like you to explain to our listeners, please, what you mean by Article Five, and also what has been invoked, which is Article Four of the NATO agreement. So help us understand sure. that, and then we'll go back to this uh, attack on civilians populations by Russia in Ukraine. But first, four and five, please. Absolutely. Well, the NATO treaty is a mutual defense treaty, meaning an attack on one is an attack on all, and that in, a, in, in the case of uh, in the case of a possible attack, Article Four calls for member states to meet and to investigate what's happening. Uh, and to consider possible action. So Poland has invoked Article 4, calling on its fellow NATO members to uh, investigate, to consider what, what actually occurred. Article 5 uh, would be a, a military response or a potential military response that, that a that a attack has occurred on a NATO country, meaning that all other members of NATO are obliged under the treaty to go on a war footing and be prepared to engage in a military response as deemed uh, appropriate and necessary. One last question on this topic. Does this incident show us or should it show us how close we are or could be to an accidental escalation of this war? Well, that's a good question. Um, you, you know, it, you just have to take a look at the geography, take, take out a map of Central Europe, and you see that Ukraine, Ukraine is a very big country, and it stretches in the east well, well towards, towards Russia, not, you know, within uh, distant, not so very far from Moscow in one direction, but it stretches a thousand miles in westward into the heart of Europe. And it has a long border with Poland and uh, in other European countries. So uh, it's, uh, it's remarkable that there haven't been more incidents like this so far because a lot of the attacks by Russia on Ukraine, Western Ukraine, especially around Kiev, not Kiev, Lvov, uh, have been not that very far from the Polish border. So there could have been incidents like this well before this. Uh, so uh, in fact, uh, it's clear that Russia is trying very hard to avoid uh, s such incidents from occurring because, because I think the Russians understand that a war with NATO would be utterly devastating. It would, it would just obliterate Russia's military entirely. So I, I think they're very, very cautious about provoking a war with NATO. Again, thank you for making me feel better. I would like to turn to something that... Oh, but, but yeah. Bill, you, yes. you said, is there a risk of escalation? And that is ever-present. There is a risk of escalation. And we do have to worry about that 
either because Russia does uh, attack NATO countries at f further down the line, uh, or because it chooses to um, to use weapons of mass destruction, or there are other ways in which the conflict could escalate. But right now, that doesn't seem imminent. I appreciate the caveat. Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent from The Nation. I want your perspective on the topic that I said we would return to, and we do now, which is Russia's attacks on civilians and civilian populations and civilian targets. It has been a massive escalation in that regard in the last couple of days. Uh, targets that have, as far as I can tell, no military, uh, no military purpose, uh, and the purpose of the Russian attack is to demoralize and to defeat the spirit of Ukraine and its people. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I guess we have to put this, uh, set this against Russia's defeat on the battlefield. Uh, we, 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 we know that uh, Russia has been suffering one military defeat after the other, most recently in the city of Kherson, uh, which, which was a terrible defeat for Russia uh, militarily and and symbolically, militarily because it was the bridgehead, the Russian bridgehead in the west of Ukraine, and and it's uh, 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 if Russia was going to seize Odessa, which clearly was the was Putin's intent, uh, which would really be a crippling blow to Ukraine. They need Kherson, the city of Kherson. And it's also symbolical because it, it is the capital of the Kherson region, which uh, Putin announced was a, you know, a inherent part of Russia just a few weeks ago. So to lose that city is, is a, a personal blow to Putin. As, as, I, as I understand it, let me, the Russians did actually not lose a battle at Kherson, but uh, were unable because of the destruction of the bridges to keep their troops supplied. So it was a tactical retreat as opposed to a battlefield uh, victory for uh, Ukrainian forces. Do I understand that correctly or do I need, need a little assistance on that? Well, I, I, I would say it was a battlefield defeat in this sense that the Ukrainians have been systematically attacking the outskirts of Kherson for the past two, three months, uh, grounding, grinding down Russian forces with, with artillery. And th this is where aid from the US and other NATO countries has made a difference, providing Ukrainian forces with superior artillery to the Russians, what the Russians had uh, earlier in the war, Russia had an advantage in artillery, which allowed them to advance in Donetsk and Luhansk in the east. Now Ukraine has an advantage in artillery and it allowed them to destroy Russian defenses around this city. And, and so uh, the Russian commanders there I think concluded that to hold out would result in the systematic destruction of some of their best forces 
and they need they need to they need to have a top you know high quality forces elsewhere on the front so rather than risk losing an estimated 25,000 soldiers uh, they chose to extricate them from the city so i would call that a battlefield defeat is it right to conclude that but for the military aid that the United States and other NATO nations have supplied to Ukraine, that Russia would have won this war by now? No, that's not correct. Uh, not at all. Uh, Russia probably would have managed to, uh, to, to secure more of Ukraine than it did, but uh, the Ukrainian forces have proven to be far more adept uh, than Russian forces, far more capable on their own. Uh, there are no, um, no NATO forces fighting on the ground. What about, the, is, what about the equipment we've supplied? How important has that been or not? That's been important uh, in turning the tide uh, to give the Ukrainians the momentum. So it has played a difference, but it's Ukrainian uh, uh, morale that's the crucial factor here. And this is why, this brings us back to your earlier question, Bill, about the Russian attacks on civilian facilities in Ukraine that we've seen over the past few days. As I said, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, loss of Kherson was a personal blow to Putin. And he's coming under a lot of criticism in Russia, not from a peace community, which he's totally silenced and suppressed, but from right-wing pro-war factions that want him to, to be tougher. And since he's proven unable to do that on the battlefield, He's trying to uh, demonstrate toughness in, in the most brutal way by attacking civilians and their, you know, and civilian facilities to show that he's still capable of inflicting pain on Ukraine. Uh, th this is, you know, really sick in my mind that he responds this way. But he has to show his own constituents his own pro-war faction, that Russia is still capable of inflicting damage on Ukraine, even though his soldiers are unable to do so. We're speaking with Michael Clare. He is a professor emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, prolific author on these issues. We're going to continue our conversation with Michael Clare right after this break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, who is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, professor emeritus at Hampshire College of Peace and World Security Studies. We wanted to, I wanted to go on and uh, ask uh, Professor Clare about uh, the recent developments between the United States and China, 
which has been front page news, of course. But before we leave our discussion of Ukraine, I have two questions for you, Michael Clare, which we had touched on uh, during the break while you and me and Monty were talking. First, will this attack, this concerted attack by Russia with missiles on the Ukrainian infrastructure, civilian targets, will do you, will that have, in your judgment, the effect, the desired effect of causing Ukrainians to say, this is just too painful, too hard, too much hunger, too much suffering, too much death, and sue for peace? That's the first question. And the second is, is the attack by Russia on the civilian targets and on civilians, is that a war crime? So could you talk to us about those two issues, please? Let me take the second first. Yes, it's a war crime. Under the Hagen-Geneva Conventions, signed after World War One and Two, uh, there is a, a, a principle of proportionality that you cannot use more military force than is necessary to achieve a military objective. And attacks on civilian populations in excess of that is considered a war crime. And there's no question at all in my mind that what Russia is doing constitutes a war crime. Now, um, what will it have the intended effect in Moscow's mind of causing the Ukrainians to give up the fight and, and sue for peace? At this point, I'm very skeptical that that's the case. Uh, now, here I'm dependent on reporting by uh, New York Times and other reporters who were interviewing people in Ukraine who consistently say that the damage only makes them more determined to fight the Russians, that their hatred of the Russians is only increased by all of this. So, uh, you know, that's the basis I'm going by. But but from all, all that we could see, the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian military is, is, is only increasing, not diminishing. Let's, let's turn to China, another uh, geopolitical problem for the United States and for the world community in many ways. There were smiling photographs of the, the president and the leader of China, uh, handshakes of, that seemed to be friendly and gave the impression that uh, relations between the United States and China were better. But you read the content of the news reports and those smiling photos seem to be giving and projecting a distorted picture. What is the real story of what is happening between the United States and China and how much of a hotspot and a, uh, it, 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 well, that's not the right word, but how difficult is the relationship at this point and what are the dangers that it poses? Well, I, I think the backdrop to that meeting in Bali on Monday was that uh, advisors to President Biden and, and no doubt to President Xi of China were saying to them, if we don't uh, cool things off, we're headed to a, a clash, a military clash and a possible World War III. Things were headed in a really bad downward spiral of suspicion and tension that could lead to war. So we have to head off a collision. So yes, 
I think that the meeting in Bali succeeded in uh, cooling things down a little bit or, you know, uh, bringing us back from the brink uh, that, they're, that they're actually talking to each other um, and laying uh, the groundwork for more talks uh, and, and promising not to start a war with one another without calling each other up and, and saying, hey, what's going on here? That was the essence of the meeting that we're, we're, we're going to try to avoid uh, getting into a, into a fight uh, w- without at least talking about it. But nothing was resolved. Uh, the Taiwan issue, which is the one that's most likely to spark a fight, there was no movement whatsoever and no promise whatsoever of of progress on that front or on trade or on any of the other key issues between them. So uh, the smiling, I think, was just relief that uh, we're not headed towards another war on top of Ukraine. China says Taiwan is part of China. The United States says, or Biden has made explicit, that if China attacks and tries to take over Taiwan, that we will intervene and protect Taiwan militarily. How does this de-escalate? The way it de-escalates is that for the Taiwanese to enter this conversation and the Taiwanese to say, uh, leave us alone. You know, let us be ourselves. Uh, We will not declare independence formally, in, in fact, they are, you know, a de facto independent play entity, but, you know, say, leave us alone, let us be, let us prosper, let us all prosper together. Uh, but uh, the two sides are using us as a battering ram. And uh, please stop. Uh, and work out some kind of arrangement with China where China doesn't feel threatened by the possibility of China, of Taiwan moving towards independence. Uh, If you read the speeches by Xi Jinping, he says clearly, we can wait. We're in no hurry. We want uh, want eventually for reunification to occur, but we're willing to wait. We're willing to talk with the Taiwanese and win them over. So they're in no hurry. So we shouldn't push this to the brink of war. Another issue that is of crucial import, both politically and militarily, has to do with control of the South China Sea and those shipping lanes. Is that another area where we could find ourselves in a war with China? Absolutely. Uh, because the U.S. doesn't recognize Chinese military occupation of those islands that they dredged up sand from the bottom of the ocean and turned into military bases. Um, And every month or so, U.S. warships go into the, very close to those islands uh, against Chinese claims that they're infringing on on Chinese national territory. It would be as if Chinese ships came off of Long Island or Martha's Vineyard with, you know, within 12 miles limit. So this is very provocative behavior on both sides, really. 
uh, and it, it could trigger an incident that would lead to conflict. This is another area where both sides could take steps to de-escalate. Uh, the U.S. Uh, cutting back on those provocative maneuvers and, and, and China uh, taking steps to demilitarize those islands. But the islands were built for the purpose of being military bases. So that's kind of a, a cart and the horse question, right? Because those islands, as I said, were built by China to be military bases, right? Yes, that's, that's true. But, you know, if China wants to, wants, as they say, to avoid conflict and a war in the region, you know, there have to be quid pro quos on both sides. And that's the only thing that you, you can do to avoid a war is, is steps on both sides. It can't be, we can't demand that only China make compromises and they can't, they can't say that only we make compromises. There has to be a give and take of some sort. Maybe the one I said is not the perfect one, but there do have to be mutual accommodations. Yeah, and I feel that their talking gives us some relief and some hope. You agree with yeah. that? Yeah, the best thing that happened in Bali is that they agreed to resume talks about the climate, about climate change, and that could lead to progress on other issues over time. We're going to leave it at that on the optimistic note. Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, thank you so very much for being with us regularly on our show. We really appreciate your time, your insight, your expertise. Thanks, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our regular segment, Cool Films, with Larry Hott. Larry, of course, is a Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. We want to continue the conversation in some ways that we were having with Michael Clare. And Larry, the microphone is yours for the films you want to tell us about this morning. Please. Well, we've been watching the drama of uh, Brittany Greiner in the news, what's happened to her in Russia, that she is now in the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, she's facing nine years of forced labor. And it made me think about this film I'd recently seen about Alexei Navalny. Uh, Alexei Navalny is in the news quite a bit. He is the opposition leader in Russia who is now serving at least 20 years, if not life. Uh, this is a CNN film that goes into great deal great detail about who he is and how he got there. Uh, it's a thriller from the first minute. Um, I, of course, of course, have heard about Alexei Navalny. I've seen some of the uh, news footage, but I didn't really know any of the details about him. I didn't know, for example, that he really um, was kind of a nationalist at first, uh, somebody that was more in, uh, in the populist mode. Um, so this is not a a film that sings his praises is much more about uh, what Putin has been trying to do to him. Uh, there is a poison that Putin uses called the Novichok nerve agent. And this is what was used to kill all of the people that uh, 
Putin has uh, assassinated. You know, it's a, a radioactive type of, of injection that they have at one, at one point delivered at the point of an umbrella to people in England, if you might remember that case. And this film follows Navalny when he's not in prison, of course, and he's out, and his wife, Yulia, as they're trying to determine who ordered this hit on him. And you actually have this the footage of Navalny being um, getting sick, uh, being put on a plane, and had the plane asked to land in somewhere in Russia to get emergency treatment. The doctors will not even talk to his wife to tell him what's going on. And the film is basically a detective story. And you end up starting to root for Navalny, not because you know much about him or his politics, but more that what is um, Putin doing to him and what is he doing to dissidents? So I think if we hear a clip from this, you get a sense of how intense this film is. Remarkably, Vladimir Putin faces a legitimate opponent, Alexei Navalny. I don't want Putin being president. If I want to be a leader of a country, I have to organize people. The Kremlin hates Navalny so much that they refuse to say his name. Passengers heard Navalny cry out in agony. Come on, poisoned? Seriously? We are creating a coalition to fight this regime. If you are killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? It's very simple. Never give up. Never give up is the last thing you hear from Navalny. Um, but by the end of the film, he is in prison and he's not, uh, there doesn't seem to be any way for him to get out. Yes, Bill. Could you stop there, please, Larry? <clears throat> Here's something I don't understand. <clears throat> Navalny was out and the film's being made uh, while he's not in Russia and not in prison. He returns voluntarily to Russia with the expectation right that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be thrown in prison, there's going to be some sort of uh, make-believe trial, and he's going to be sent to a gulag for a long, long time. Why would he voluntarily go back to those conditions and to that situation? I don't get it. His voice is, for the most part, silenced in that situation, in the situation he is today. He makes the decision, and this is implied in the film, that he has more power as a martyr than he does knocking on the door from the outside. Uh, what makes the film so poignant is that he has a wife and kids and that they know they see this coming. Uh, he is making a, a calculation that eventually he will be, he will get out. And if he doesn't, he'll do more good inside. It's like a hunger strike in a way. And in fact, I think there is, he actually does uh, do a hunger strike, which is not part of, part of the film. Um, so it's kind of hard to understand why somebody would make this sacrifice, but that's part of the power of the film. You have to constantly ask yourself while you're watching this, what would I do under similar circumstances? And what am I doing now? What does anybody who watches this film think about what their forms of protest are in the United States, where the chances of going to prison for our protest is much lower than it is in Putin's Russia? And this is why I, br I brought up uh, Brittany Griner, uh, I don't know if you, you know, the outline of the case is she's the WNBA uh, star who uh, was carrying 
uh, a little bit of what she says prescribed hashish with her. There, she gets arrested. She's been playing on a Russian basketball team and has now been sentenced to, I think, nine years at hard labor. And recently, an article came out by one of the members of Pussy Riot. You might remember Pussy Riot, uh, an oddly named group, uh, which made me think that the Novichok nerve agent would also be a great name for a rock group. Uh, the Pussy Riot girls uh, were arrested for performing in a Russian Orthodox church and sentenced to several years in jail. There was a brilliant HBO documentary made in 2013 about Pussy Riot. One of the most powerful parts of that film were the interviews with the girl's family. Uh, and I'll give you one scene in it. Uh, we don't we don't have a trailer from it because it's all in Russian with subtitles, so it doesn't work on radio. But there's one scene where the uh, Pussy Riot group uh, takes over a museum where lots of tourists and other people are viewing uh, some high-end museum. They strip off their clothes and they engage in sex acts in front of a crowd, right? The next thing you see in the film are interviews with the girls' fathers about how they feel about what kind of, about their, these forms of protest. So you really get a sense of the emotional drain on the families for this kind of protest in Putin's Russia. Uh, and recently, one of the women from Pussy Riot was interviewed about what Brittany Griner can expect to happen to her in prison. And it wasn't pretty. And she actually referenced Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the Gulag Archipelago and said, read that book. I don't know if you read that book uh, as a child. I read it when I was uh, a teenager. Uh, I remember asking my mother about what some of the words in it meant because it was so f full of foul language. Um, and I was shocked at the time that those conditions existed in, in a modern society. And when uh, the Pussy Ride uh, member is saying, read uh, Gulag Archipelago to have a sense of what Brittany Griner is going through, I, I really began to feel um, fear for her mental health, which she has expressed herself. So this film, Navalny, is a great pairing with Pussy Riot, which you can find on just about any platform. Amazon Prime, I think, has it. And CNN has uh, the, the, the Navalny film. Uh, this will give you great insight into the pressures on any um, anti-Putin protester uh, and maybe some insight into what's happening in Ukraine as well. The name of the film, the title of the film, Larry? Is simply Navalny. And the uh, Pussy Riot film is called Pussy Riot. There you go. Very easy to remember. Yeah, I want to come back. I want to talk to you more about these two films. We're going to do that right after this break. We'll be more. We'll have more with Larry Hot right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHM. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our segment, Cool Films, with Larry Hott. Larry is a Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. We have been talking with Larry about two films, Navalny and Pussy Riot, both of which, as I understand, Larry, are available on many platforms for our viewing at this point. Could we go back to the film on Pussy Riot for a moment, please? I'd like to sure. know, we know where Navalny is, I think, more or less, in a uh, uh, prison in the gulag uh where or is 
are the members of Pussy Riot the band? Are they in prison, out of prison at this point? What's their status? Is that they are not in prison, and they are still taking great risks. And that surprised me. Um, and I don't know what <laughs> reason they're not in prison. Uh, but uh, by speaking out right now of, um, about uh, Brittany Griner, I think they're taking great risks. Um, and when you have uh, family and young children doing that, uh, it really takes a lot of courage. Although we know there's a thin line between courage and stupidity. I don't know when they cross it. Well, it's worth noting, um, and this is from earlier this year in the, or at least updated earlier this year from the New York Times, the headline, leader of Pussy Riot Band escapes Russia with help from friends after more than a decade of activism. Maria Alokina disguised herself as a food courier to evade the police and a widening crackdown by President Putin and escaped through the, uh, the Belarusian border, posing as... A, you know, a delivery driver. So they continue to do incredible and incredibly brave things. All right. So speaking of incredibly brave, I'd like to, if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about another amazing film that I've seen recently. Sure, sure. I mean, I would actually, before you do that, I'd love to go back to one thing you said in the earlier segment, and that is about Navalny and his family and having to leave them and how is that portrayed? And how does that leave you as a viewer feeling about what Navalny did and what he's I done? Think that is the crux of the film. Uh, getting to know his wife, Yulia, seeing that they have small children. Uh, there's a scene where uh, they are out of Russia and they're in Germany and they're staying in a small Bavarian town and it's beautiful. And they're walking hand in hand in the street and she's telling him how hard it's going to be without him and she doesn't want him to go and she doesn't want him to get arrested. At the same time, she's totally supportive of him and she is actually the person who saved his life when he was poisoned. Um, so you see this strong bond between them and it, it actually has a very a Hollywood-like feel to it, sort of like, you know, Casablanca where, you know, the, she's Ilsa is telling Rick that, you know, she she wants to stay with him and he wants her to go. It's that kind of scene almost. Um, so this this film really tugs tug at your emotions and it makes the sacrifices of somebody like Navalny very real. I remember the footage and watching her kiss him goodbye as they land after the plane lands in Russia and he's just before he's taken away and I'm kind of yelling at him, don't do it, don't do it. But of course, yeah, and, and the, you know the steam is rising around the the locomotive in the station. Oh wait, that's sorry, that's Casablanca. But it feels <laughs> it feels like that. Yeah, it does. Okay, you want to tell us about one more film? Well, yeah, uh, last night I was the moderator for a film at Amherst Cinema uh, called uh, Who Will Remain? And it's about the poet Sutzkever, uh, who uh, was a partisan and uh, a poet in uh, Lithuania, fought against the Nazis, and uh, eventually uh, survived and moved to Israel. And it's a very powerful film. And in this film, you see these scenes from old footage of Lithuania and Vilnius in particular, talking about the Jewish community there. Um, well, I found it fascinating to see that those images after having just watched another film called Three Minutes, A Lengthening, which played recently at the Amherst Cinema. Uh, this is one of the more creative and filmmaker-centric films I've seen in a long time. Three Minutes, A Lengthening, a very strange title. What it's about is a man named Glenn Kurtz, who in 2009 discovered a badly damaged three-minute reel of film in his parents' Florida home. And he sets out to get it preserved. He finds somebody who can uh, make the film viewable 
and it seems it turns out to be three minutes of footage of a Polish town that his grandfather grew up in and his grandfather went back to in the late 30s and it's only three minutes and he takes apart literally frame by frame for over 70 minutes every person who they can see all 150 people that you can see who are mugging for the camera going in and out of a synagogue walking on the streets selling things and eventually goes around the world tracking down the survivors and finds 14 or 15 people who survived now almost everybody of the uh, 3000 of the 3000 Jews in this small town were murdered by the Nazis only a hundred survived the war and he finds 14 survivors and he shows them the film and they start talking about who is in the film but why is this a filmmaker's film is it talks about the preservation of the footage it talks about frame by frame analysis right it talks about uh, the importance of, of of how the film was shot and the images there and you get a more personal view of the holocaust through this film through th than you do through many long-form documentaries and it really brings back that old statement you know six million people is a, a statistic you know one family is a tragedy and you get to see not only the family but the town through the eyes of this uh, filmmaker who has taken just three minutes of film and the, that's all you see is this three minutes of film stretched out over 70 minutes so three minutes a lengthening one of the more powerful documentaries I've ever seen. And is the film, the original three minutes of film, is that interspersed with these interviews? How, how, is, how did the filmmaker do no, There are no interviews. You only hear voiceover. So it is just looking at these images, frozen, picked out, moved around over and over again. The same images. You don't, at first you think, how can I watch these same images over and over again? But the filmmaker makes it fascinating. So it is on Amazon on Voodoo, on Google Play, uh, highly recommended, one of the better films of the year. It's called Three Minutes of Lengthening. Three Minutes of Lengthening, Pussy Riot, and Navalny. You recommend all three films? All three of them. Take off, take off a night and watch them all together. Sounds a little depressing. Yeah, devastating, but why not? Have a glass of wine with it. You'll feel better. Larry Hot, we're going to leave it there. Thank you. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hot. We really appreciate your time and your recommendations, Larry. Thanks so much for being with us on a regular basis. We really appreciate it. Okay, see you next time. Bye-bye. Passeranno, oh, ve la ciao, ve la ciao, ve la ciao.